Welcome to Doctor Informed, brought to you by the BMJ, made in collaboration with this institute and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed aims to take you beyond medical knowledge. We're talking about all those things that you need to be a good doctor, but which don't always involve medicine. In this episode, we'll be talking about who is responsible for patient safety. We're always encouraged to speak out, but in healthcare, it's not always clear about who you should speak out to. We'll hear from Bill Kirkup, who's led independent investigations in the NHS and who appeared in our first podcast. And we'll also hear from Henrietta Hughes, the NHS's first guardian, whose whole job was promoting freedom to speak out. I'm Clara Monroe. I'm a general surgical registrar in the northeast of England, uh, and I'm also a clinical editor at the BMJ. Um, and last year, I was one of the National Medical Directors Clinical Fellows, um, and I was lucky enough to meet Aisha Ashmore, who will be joining us today. Um, Aisha, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, hi, Clara, and thanks so much for having me again. So um, my name's Aisha Ashmore. I'm an Oz and Gynae registrar in Leicester, and I was, um, like Clara, um, on a fellowship last year at the CQC. Lovely. So uh, it sounds like a horribly dry topic, doesn't it? Bureaucracy, (laughs) levels of bureaucracy. Um, But like, I suppose... In your clinical experience, Aisha, who did you think, probably before starting your fellowship, because I know that we did, you know, you do gain a bit of experience through that. Um, but who would you have said when you started um, becoming a doctor was in charge of patient safety in the hospital? Oh, God. I mean, I, didn't, I don't think I had a clue, to be honest. I mean, there, we, we get taught at medical school that it's, it's everyone's responsibility. You always need to speak up for what's right. But actually, when you start working and you're an F1 and suddenly you're presented with a situation where you need to speak up, it's very difficult to, to realise, oh, who do I actually go to here? Because it's not really clear. Do you go to the nurse in charge? Do you go to a consultant? Is there like another person that you need to go to? What if it's not clinical related? Who do you go to then? So I think it's it's a bit of a quagmire of of mm. um of who do you go to? I don't know, did you think that? Yeah, I I think I gained a bit more of an understanding last year on our fellowship about the different arms length bodies. But prior to that, I have to say it just felt like a bit of a black box. Um it kind of seemed like there were all these intersecting organizations, uh the big ones I kind of you know, have heard of the CQC, I've heard of the GMC, but then there's also NHS England. Um, and then there's also the individual trusts. Um, and then there's like the chief exec. And then there's like the SJT answers to questions, which are things like, okay, if something goes wrong, you speak to your educational and your clinical supervisor. But actually, I don't think I ever really knew what if you don't get the answer that you want from them? Or what if they're part of the problem? Because you know, actually, sometimes that can be the issue. Um, or maybe they play golf with the person that's the issue. So you don't want to raise it. Um, so I feel like before I started exploring this, certainly in this episode in a bit more detail, um, I did feel like I was a little bit lost. Um, and I think that my only answer to that question really could be patient safety is everybody's business I mean that's that's what you hear isn't it talked about over and over again and we're all responsible for it um and I think sometimes I look back at like times when I was maybe a foundation doctor um and I got very hot up about things not being done right um or the way that I'd been taught that they should be done um 
And I think there is that sense sometimes where you're like, I'm very new to this system. Am I missing something? I don't want to make a big song and dance about something that I think is an issue that maybe has been like that for 20 years and is like that for a good reason. Um, and I think maybe that can like make a bit of reticence uh, or sort of gave me a, a bit of reticence about like when to raise issues. But I think as you get more senior through the process of having to apply to things and take certain exams and go through certain interviews, you're kind of forced to come to to realise, you know, what are the different routes of escalating concerns and things. Mm. For, for example, I'm sure, you know, I, I helped my husband with some surgical interview practice last year. And um, I remember very well the, the escalation of concerns station um, or mm. part of that question. And I think as you may get more senior, you probably get a bit more awareness of, of how to escalate and who to and start to understand some of the governance which exists within the hospital but then I think it's really difficult when you're working in a clinical setting and then you're really junior how does that governance actually like connect with everything else and Mm. if you do raise something how you know what's actually going to happen as a result of you you know speaking up and I think those connections the kind of linking bits of you speaking speaking up and then something happening can sometimes be difficult to understand particularly when you're a junior and then if if and if if you don't understand it and therefore you don't realize if anything's happened or something may not have happened as a result then you probably that that is when people start to kind of lose hope and lose faith in in the system and that actually change and improvement can happen so that is probably an excellent point to uh, segue into the interview that I did with um, Bill Kirkup, who we've heard from before on this podcast. Um, that's coming up right after this message from our sponsor. At Medical Protection, we're different. With no financial caps or limits on the protection we offer members we take a discretionary approach to providing assistance. This flexibility lets us help where other providers may not, treating cases on their individual merits and adapting to a wider range of situations. As a member-owned, not-for-profit organisation, we exist to support your professional interests and protect your finances, career and reputation. Our doctor-to-doctor support and advice can help you navigate the way whatever lies ahead. Plus, the number of times you contact our helpline won't affect what you pay for protection. If you're a consultant solely working in the NHS, that price is just £549. Isn't it time to get protected and practice with confidence? Join today at medicalprotection.org uk. And now my interview with Bill. Thank you. Yes, I'm Bill Kirkup. Um, I spent the first 10 years of my career as a practicing clinician. Um, after that, I did uh, public health and health service management. But for the last 11 years or so, I've been involved in major investigations into situations where things have gone badly wrong, mostly in health uh, services, but, but also in other services too. So... Obviously, you are brought in <laughs> to investigate when things have gone really, really badly wrong. Um, and that's sort of right at the end of um, probably a series of, of other 
um, things not going well. Um, but that's the worst case scenario. Um, and there are lots of organisations, layer of layers of regulation and bureaucracy in place to try and stop it getting to that point. Um, can you just briefly explain what some of those elements are that exist before you end up having to come in? Uh, gosh, uh, yeah, you, 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 it's complicated. Answers on a postcard. Um, you're right. You're right. An independent investigator is, is the investigator of last resort. So I get to see all of the um, most extreme stuff and I have to remember that when I'm commenting. Mm. Um, but the other thing that I want to say is that uh, just about everybody who has worked on those sort of investigations concludes that the regulatory landscape in the health service is incredibly complicated. It is very difficult to understand and very difficult to negotiate, especially if you're a family who thinks that they've been the subject of an injustice. It, it's really complicated to try and work out what to do for the best. Um, okay, so the primary responsibility lies with the trust. The trust is responsible uh, to its board of, of uh, non-execs and execs for the quality of the services that it provides and the initial responsibility um, if there are problems with the service lies for, fairly and squarely with the trust. Um, there are also uh, external regulators. Uh, the independent regulator is the Care Quality Commission, which is primarily responsible for looking at the quality of services. Uh, they have an enormous job to do because mm -hmm. they license not only all of the healthcare providers, not just big trusts, but, you know, little surgeries and premises as well. Uh, and they're also responsible for uh, social care providers too. So they have a huge span, um, but they are responsible for quality and that includes safety uh, regulation of the health service. Then you have uh, NHS England, uh, which is now the result of a co whole complicated series of mergers between predecessor bodies who did bits here and there. Uh, you see why it's complicated. Yeah, I, it's reassuring to hear that because I think as clinicians, you hear about about these um, regulators or external organisations, and you think, "Oh gosh, I don't even know where to start with this." So, um, yeah, and I, I don't know where to start in trying to explain how it's all supposed to work. It doesn't help that it keeps changing. Yeah. Uh, you know, so many times over the course of my professional life, we, we've decided to tear it all up and start again with a new structure. Um, and I understand the desire to, to do that. If you're sat in an office in, in Westminster or, or Whitehall, uh, there are very few levers that you can actually pull that are connected mm. to it very directly. Mm. You can influence stuff, but there's not very much that you can pull to say, well, let's do it this way instead of that way. One of them is, how uh, the health service is, is uh, organised administratively and managerially. Um, and as a result, it's very hard to resist the temptation to pull the lever every now and again. But every now and again turns out to be, on average, about every two years. I think. Okay. Since the, since, not quite since the health service was founded, but certainly since the 1970s, when I think we had the first major reorganisation. It's been about every two mm. years. The bits, I suppose, that most doctors will be familiar with are um, Royal Colleges and, of course, the GMC. Um, how do they fit into those layers that you've already mentioned, or do they fit into those layers that you've already mentioned? Um, in a way, um, the Royal Colleges are, don't have a, a role in inspecting or regulating healthcare. Uh, they certainly have a role in setting standards and in professional development. 
Uh, where it gets slightly blurred is that often uh, Royal College will be asked to provide a team to report on a particular problem, particularly if it, if it involves clinical practice or uh, the way that clinical mm. teams are working. Um, but their responsibility when they're called in like that is direct to the trust. It's not to anybody uh, external at all. Uh, a lower number of us would have recommended in the past that their report should be public because it is a public service and ought to know mm. um, what's happening in it. Um, the professional regulators, GMC, uh, NMC and others, um, but they're the two biggest, um, do have a role, but it's a very circumscribed role in relation to individual practitioners. And it is related mm. to those practitioners' fitness to practice, which is quite tightly defined. Um, and I mm. do have a problem with that. I don't think that this is a system that is working effectively or helpfully at present. Because if you're, um, you know, if, if uh, the, the tool is a hammer, every problem is a nail, um, Every problem is fitness to practice one if it goes to the GMC. Although it might be the most mm. complex, multifactorial uh, problem related to team working and systems and human factors, but it all has to be boiled down to was that practitioner fit to practice at that point in time? And if what do we do about mm. it? Um, there does need to be a role for that, of course, there does. Um, but I do feel strongly that it gets deployed far too often in that particular sense, forcing mm. issues into were they a competent practitioner or were they not. Uh, what would be much more helpful, I believe, would be um, taking a broader view that says uh, we recognise clinical error, we recognise that these things happen, we recognise that they're very rarely due to an individual acting recklessly or negligently, they are sometimes, and we have to have mechanisms for that, but they are much more commonly mm. associated with environment and human factors and uh, systems problems. Um, and this is how we tackle those. And I would switch the emphasis from uh, how did the error happen in the first place and was it culpable negligence to how was it dealt with? Was it disclosed openly and honestly and did you learn from it? And I think if people do that, then they shouldn't be subject to professional regulatory processes. That's a long way away from how I perceive it working at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think all clinicians will be so familiar with the Hadiza Bawagawa case. And, um, you know, I guess it's that fear of existing in a system where you get the blame or you're scapegoated for something that you know really is a systems error and or, or is a series of uh, systems errors and it's whether there's anything you can do to mitigate that as an individual clinician um, within that regulatory process um, and I suppose from what you've said we don't really have the answers for that at the moment. Um, would you have any advice for individual clinicians working in in those sorts of you know situation where they feel like the functioning of the team at a wider level um, isn't maybe as cohesive as it could be. Other than uh, to, to raise this when your next uh, CQC inspection comes around, mm. um, or if you feel able to approach your freedom to speak up guardian, then please do so. I mean, you know, that the mm. overriding duty remains to make sure that services are safe uh, for patients mm. and, and effective for patients. 
Um, so if there is a CQC inspection coming, how, or I know that there's one coming to the hospital I'm working at, how do I make sure that my voice gets heard at those? One of the mechanisms that people can use, um, one of those ways is to go and talk to the CQC inspectors in the closed session where people are invited to, to go and talk. And you can do that without having to be invited by the trust. You can just drop it. That's really interesting because as a clinician, I have been in trusts where the CQC inspection has happened. Um, and it is the sort of polish your boots, granny and grandpa are coming around and you need to look your best. Um, but, you know, I actually did not know that those sessions existed. Having that understanding for clinicians is so empowering because I think sometimes it can feel like you are a bit of an anonymous voice and somebody else is talking for you about how things are being done at the call face. Um, and yeah, so I, I just think even, you know, maybe I'm showing completely my own ignorance, but I think knowing that those sessions and that part of the process exists, I think is is really mm. empowering. It, it ought to be uh, better known. And I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, to be uh, a little cynical about it, if you're a trust that wants to present your best face, the last thing you want is actually people running around the back and saying, <laughs> yeah, but it's really more like this. So you probably don't yeah. publicise that part of very mm. Mm. and I think maybe that is something that you know hopefully this podcast will do that service a little bit but you know just understanding that process a bit more you know as part of our training is is yeah I think it's really helpful good I hope so so I was quite glad when I did that interview with Bill. Um, it wasn't just me who was confused about the bureaucracy of of the NHS, um, and it, especially when it comes to looking after patient safety, because um, this is Bill's job, and he even f- admits to finding it quite confusing. Um, I think it's always feels that speaking up about something is telling tales. Like I don't, I cannot conceive a situation where I knew that there was a CQC inspection and I went to the CQC inspectors and said, I think that this department has a real issue with, um, I don't know, uh, sexism, or I think there's a real issue here um, with the way that um, minority ethnic groups are treated. You know, I'm not, I just, I cannot conceive a way that that can ever be done that doesn't feel like I'm telling tales on my employer. Um, and I think certainly, you know, I like you, I've not really been around when um, inspections have taken place. I can maybe remember one and I remember it very vaguely and I was extremely junior and I didn't really feel like my voice would be important or interesting. Um so I never went and spoke to anyone. And, and to be fair, you know, there weren't any issues, but I just feel like if they were, that would take that would take quite a lot of balls to go and speak to a CQC inspector and be like, I think there's a massive issue in this department. Uh, and I'm just not sure that I, I would have that as a junior trainee. Um, I think it's, it's similar with exception reporting, isn't it? Like there's this whole thing about exception reporting and... Um, especially in places that I've worked, people haven't wanted to exception report because they think they're telling tales and, you know, you know, causing problems and trying to get extra time off when actually they should just be, you know, taking one for the team and 
um, mm. you know, putting in that extra mile and things when when it's actually not like that. Um, it's about making sure that you're working safe hours and um, can can give your best to patient care when when you're actually meant to be there rather than, you know, working two hours post night shift and then, you know, not getting enough sleep and being worse off the next day. And I think it's it's similar when when, you know, you're when it comes to speaking to anyone external about about the, the care that's being delivered at that service, you just it, it's really difficult to do that. I've had um, in the last trust I worked, there was a, a really positive experience where one of the uh, I think it might have even been the um, clinical director said to me, you must exemption report that you've stayed late, because if you don't, we have no record that you're staying late and the other people are staying late. And therefore, we have no argument for asking for I think it was when I was an SHO, another SHO. Um, and actually, I thought, oh. Right. Okay. I yeah, know that that makes sense. Okay. I'll exemption report. I don't feel like I'm telling tales. I feel like I'm, you know, doing the right thing because there's now a record of that existing and that problem can be solved rather than me kind of squirreling off behind somebody's back and saying, oh, I had to stay late or I had to do this. Um, so I think, like you say, it does come from the way that leadership frame those things. Um, and if if exemption reporting is framed like that, then people will do it. Yeah, for the right exactly. It, it's the link between, you know, what am I achieving by doing this and what the, mm. the outcome is going to be. I don't think people realise, you know, everything is evidence-based, isn't it? Everything in medicine is evidence-based. And also mm. to, to kind of get any service improvement or change has to be evidence-based. And I think the, if you, I think if we can reframe how we think about exception reporting or speaking up and things and and kind of framing it in the way that we're producing an evidence base so that something else happens I think that would really help people to understand why they they should kind of engage with these kind of processes but then at the same time there's an element of leadership kind of taking that on board and creating change and I think that's that's the second hurdle that you get to um because when when people do all of these things um, and really want to drive change but then perhaps it doesn't happen for whatever reason people start to lose faith and I think that's so I think there's two steps to trying to ensure that people a speak up and b change happens. On that note someone who has uh, changed a lot about uh, speaking up is our next guest on the podcast um, Henrietta Hughes um, who was the first national um Guardian um, and implemented the role of the National Freedom to Speak Up Guardians um, across trusts. Um, so I will pass you over to our interview with Henrietta Hughes. And that's coming up after this. Do you have time in your day to stay current with the ever-changing medical information needed to treat your patients? With your busy schedule, it can't be much. That's why you need up to date. UpToDate provides accurate, evidence-based clinical information and treatment recommendations in an organised and searchable format so you can find answers you can trust quickly and easily. Join the growing network of over 2 million medical professionals worldwide who rely on UpToDate in their daily practice. Visit go.uptodate.com talk. That's go.uptodate.com talk and use promo code TALK to save 25 US dollars on your annual or longer subscription. 
And now back to my interview with Henrietta Hughes. My name's Henrietta Hughes and I'm a GP. I was previously the National Guardian for the NHS, um, a role which came about for following the Francis inquiry into mid-staffs. Following on from that, uh, he made some recommendations. One of those was that every NHS trust in England should have a freedom to speak up guardian and that there should be a National Guardian to lead that network. And, um, and that was my role um, for five years. One of the things that Bill Kirkup said when I interviewed him um, was how important speaking up is. Um, but he did also say that um, he's not sure that the NHS as an organisation will always reliably have your back. Um, I wanted to know what you think about that, given your your role. Well, absolutely. And... Um, we published data um, about speaking up and um, there were over 50,000 cases raised to Freedom to Speak Up Guardians while I was in post. And of those, 3% of people felt that they had received detriment for speaking up. Now, in the context, that's 97% of people who didn't, but we're still talking about hundreds of people who, for whatever reason, felt that speaking up had had a negative impact for them. So I think it shows that the job is not finished. You know, there's still plenty more to be done. Um, but what I was going to mention is about how people of the generation that come after me are less satisfied with just putting up with things. They want to be able to raise matters. And I think the social movements, including Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and Everyone's Invited, have really shown that people are not prepared to just stand by and you know not not see see change happen and um, one of the things that i'm really pleased about is that freedom to speak up is now seen as a route for tackling uh, discrimination tackling harassment um, because people feel that they do want to raise matters and then what happens afterwards so um, working with for example uh, staff networks and the Workforce Race Equality Standard Team, um, people are able to now bring things to the fore and see changes happen through freedom to speak up. But I, I would absolutely agree to say, it, with over a million people working in the NHS, there's going to be a wide spectrum of different experiences, organisations who've got different um, you know, culture, cultural uh, sort of norms, um, and I think we see that very much in CQC inspection reports. Mm. So I would really encourage um, junior doctors to read the CQC inspection reports for their organisations to learn a bit more about uh, the reality before they join an organisation, um, but also to really see that they are part of this social movement of, of change and improvement. Um, and they are going to be the leaders of the future. So get, get your skills up to scratch because you might be speaking up now, but it won't be long before you're the boss. And if you build that into your norms, then you'll be able to listen up and follow up like a pro. 
I suppose um, when we started talking about this just before we recorded, um, you said something that really resonated with me, which is that we select medical students and we select doctors, um, often based on SJT style questions, um, which focus a lot around what would you do or what should you do in certain situations. Um, And I think one of the things I've talked to other clinicians about is this idea that... um, that we kind of know what we should do um but then on the ground often that's not really what's expected or encouraged um so particularly talking about um you know if you see something that you don't think is you know if you see something that's negatively impacting patient safety how do you raise that um could you tell me how the Freedom to Speak Up guardians have have had a role in, in sort of amplifying people's or clinicians' voice on the ground? Yes, absolutely. And so we're talking about England here because uh, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have different arrangements. Um, but every trust in England has at least one Freedom to Speak Up guardian. And they are um, an independent uh, and impartial role, uh, which acts as an interface between the workforce and the board. And you can approach a Freedom to Speak Up guardian anonymously or um, asking to be uh, confidential so that no one else knows who you are. Um, Or you can be quite happy to be open um, about who you are. It depends on what feels right to you at that moment. And they will thank you for speaking up. They'll listen to you. And they'll preserve your confidentiality if they can. Sometimes for patient safety matters or safeguarding, um, that might not be possible. Um, But what a guardian will do is actually listen to you and offer you support. And they will um, escalate the matter if you choose that you want to escalate it to whoever's the right person in the organisation. And one of the things that I hear very often is that organisations are so large and so confusing that it's not always obvious to know who might be responsible. Mm. But because the guardians are highly networked within the organisation and have got access to the execs and to the non-execs on the board, they'll be able to ensure that the right person who's responsible will be aware and will be able to then conduct whatever investigation might be needed or to make those changes. But one of the things which I think is the really big difference compared to when people have spoken up in the past is that the Guardian will also feed back to you what's been done as a result. Mm. And they will ensure that the changes and the information will lead to learning and improvement. They report to the board regularly and um, they're able to report on themes and learning. And they also work proactively in the organisation to identify any barriers that there could be to speaking up and to tackle those barriers. I think your perspective is so fascinating because you're a clinician as well as having taken part in this role because I think there can feel like there's a disconnect between um people that are are advocating for you when you um raise concerns and you think well you're a manager like what do you know about being a doctor or a nurse or or you know how it feels to work in a team um and obviously you're able to completely um straddle those two camps which I think is fantastic um you said that um when you were um sort of throughout your clinical practice you've spoken up lots of times have you ever had an experience where you've spoken up and there's been a a negative outcome and how have you taken that into 
into your role when you were working as National Guardian? Um, I, I think in a way, I don't know if it's the way that I speak up or that I have identified people that I can trust to speak up to, um, that I have never had one of those really terrible experiences where um, everything has turned against me. Um, but I've spoken to a lot of people who have. And I think that it's it, it happens after the event in the sense that people don't wake up thinking, oh, I'm going to be a whistleblower today. They just say something and the whole organisation turns against them. Mm. Um, so the, the, the times when I have found it, you know, uh, the environments that I described that were very negative, um, what I found was the support that I got was from my peers. Um, and, you know, I got a lot of support um, in terms of, there was one job that I did where I turned up and the registrar and the senior registrar were really concerned. And um, I said, what's the problem? And they said, oh, well, you know, the consultant that you're working for isn't allowed to have a female trainee. Now, in that situation, I thought to myself, well, I'm only here for six months, ho oh, harm, mm. let's get on with it. But I also could see that if the if the organization permitted somebody who wasn't allowed to have a female trainee to continue as a consultant, they had protection. They had protection that I was never going to have. And in fact, in that scenario, one of the other junior doctors who was um, in, in, in our group um, raised a concern about this this individual to the dean um, about their teaching style. Um, so we did work as a group when we were interviewed. We all agreed that this was a problem. But actually, it takes tremendous courage mm. um, to actually go against the grain of an organisation. And that's I took that experience very much on board when creating the uh, the way that Freedom to Speak Up Guardians work. And just to say that guardians come from a wide range of different professional backgrounds, including nurses and doctors and midwives, chaplains, um, but also people from an OD and HR background. And I think that the value of that is to say, you don't have to be a clinician to really get this because the chaplains hear everything. And so I do see that the value of working together with managers, when you get clinicians and managers working together, that's when you really get the magic. Um, what we have to do is, is to break down some of those barriers that exist to effective working between managers and clinicians, because we're all there to do the job, which is to get things right for our patients. And I think one of the things which I've really come across is the, uh, the challenge for middle managers who are given sort of diktats from above, and then they've got people to manage and to lead and that's a real squeeze for them. So this huge pressure. Um, and so what, one of the things which uh, in conjunction with Health Education England, uh, we set up training called Speak Up, Listen Up and Follow Up. And Speak Up training is for everyone, whatever your role, to have an understanding about what speaking up is and how to do it and where you can get support. And listen up is for managers so that they can really get a detailed understanding of what uh, factors support listening up and what gets in the way of listening up. And then follow up is more kind of coaching based for senior leaders to sort of understand what helps them to foster an environment where people feel safe. 
So I would really commend everyone to go and have a look at the Health Education England website. Um, and it's, it's, it's not arduous training, but it just puts everybody onto the same page. And I do think that for people who are going into leadership roles, people will be looking to you. People will look to you from your first day on the ward as a medical student, quite apart from as a junior doctor, a clinical director, or a medical director. Um, and when I was a medical director, I recognized that it was down to me to create the environment that people felt safe to come to me with problems. And, um, and they did. Um, and so I do think that, you know, we've all got a part to play in the speak up, but also the listen up and the follow up because they're relational exercises and, and it's not going to work if people don't um, really listen up and follow up. I, when I was listening back to that um, interview, I think one of the most powerful things about the Freedom to Speak Up Guardians, um, when I've been reflecting about it since, um, is that it's somebody who is completely separate from your clinical team. Because I think that those, you know, we talked about these classical SJT questions, like you speak to your educational or your clinical supervisor, they're usually someone within the clinical team with which you're working. And those teams are often people that have been there for ages and ages and ages. And they do that thing where they normalize a lot of the behavior and they maybe are friends with that person. They've maybe got, you know, a long standing professional relationship that can be really, really difficult, I think, if you raise an issue. Um, and actually, I think having the freedom to speak up guardian who is someone completely separate from that who isn't involved in these politics um, and has a completely different perspective. I think that that is the key to why it works. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, and I think I'd agree, um, Clara, because, you know, we have, it's, it's the same in, like, other elements of kind of the managerial role of healthcare, isn't it? So, like, there's workplace behaviour champions, there's um, bullying champions in Obsangaini, um, and they they all seem to be slightly that they, they they they're within the, the, your healthcare setting, but then slightly not in it as well. Um, mm. and for example, with with like the bullying champions in in East Midlands, you know, uh, the bullying champion for the south of the East Midlands is someone from the north, and vice versa. Um, mm. So that they still understand what's going on and will will understand the concerns that you might have and know who to contact and have still have those networks, but it's slightly removed. And I think, you know, that, that kind of allows, you know, that kind of promotes this kind of safety in speaking up, doesn't it? Because you automatically feel like you're a little bit protected and behind behind a barrier that you want to be. Yeah, and I think it also lends a bit of triangulation because I think when there's that voice in your head that's like, am I being a bit of a drama queen? Like, is this really something I should be raising? Maybe I should just ignore it. You know, if you've got that third point of the triangle to say no actually this is quite an important thing to raise I think that feels so much safer and so much more I guess so much more supportive rather than just kind of speaking straight away um to somebody that you know you don't know what the domino effect from what you've said might be sometimes I think that's always the concern isn't it yeah and I guess like there's an element of peer support there as well you know when you mm. when you have like a 
a senior reg who you can who you can go to or 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 a consultant that you're friends with um to kind of you know run those things through in, in the same way that you would do in a clinical setting like oh I'm not quite sure about this can I just run it past you I mean, it didn't exist actually I don't think when I certainly not in places that I've worked when I was a foundation doctor um so I think it's kind of happened since I've come through the system um the freedom to speak up guardians and I actually don't remember maybe this is a failure of my induction or maybe it's because a lot of my inductions have been around COVID um I didn't really truly understand the role of this freedom to speak up guardian before I spoke to Henrietta um it's I don't know, I, I kind of think of it now as an interface between what we do on the ground and, you know, who's doing the kind of bureaucratic management of patient safety. Um, and I think that that's really helpful, especially when you're entering an organisation that can feel huge and complicated and you don't really know who looks after what um, or who to go to with certain problems. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a fantastic initiative. Okay, well, that's it for this episode. We'll be getting much more into detail about speaking out, blame and psychological safety. So make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you listen. So thank you so much to our guests, um, Bill Kirkup and Henrietta Hughes for joining us today. And Aisha, thank you so much for joining me and for giving up your time to speak to us this afternoon. Thanks, Clara. It's been a pleasure as always. So thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, bye for now.